Is that the cry of your heart every day, every moment of every day? Well, do you need God when you need a job? Or do you need God when you need your marriage to be fixed? Or do you need God when you need some extra finances? No, we need God every moment of every day. It's an eternal reality for the believer in Christ that we need Him every moment of every day. I know I do, and that's a cry of my heart every day. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 19. We're going to continue the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. There's two things I want you to see here. The theology of this passage. Christ, the events that led to the cross. Christ being scourged and flogged and humiliated and mocked. It's probably around six hours before Jesus is nailed to a cross. And the crowd at this point is crying for his death. I mean, vehemently crying for his death. They're foaming at the mouth. They want this Jesus dead. And Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. I mean, he knows it. But he's vacillating. He wants to free Jesus, but also wanting to give people, the people what they want for fear of a riot and displeasing his superior. His superior was Caesar Tiberius. Also, if there was a hint of unfaithfulness to Caesar, Pilate could not only lose his position, but he could lose his life. And to Pilate's success, power, position was the most important thing in his life. Not God, not salvation, not Jesus Christ. And my prayer for you tonight is Jesus Christ is your King, your Lord, your salvation, the most important one in your life. Listen to me. Can I have every eye on me? There is nothing more important than Jesus Christ. Nothing. Turn me to John 19, verses 1 through the first half of 16. Would you mind standing for the reading of God's Word? Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up. To him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you? And authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. 
So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Father, open up our hearts to see what Christ went through prior to the cross. Let it mean not just a good story, but something Christ did, which was part of the atonement for each and every one of us for our sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We'll read you a little story from our Daily Bread, February 2nd edition. And it writes this. That great missionary to India, William Carey, became deeply concerned about the attitude of his son Felix. The young man, a professing Christian, had promised to become a missionary. But he broke his vow when he was appointed ambassador to Burma. Carey requested prayer for him. Pray for Felix. He has degenerated into an ambassador of the British government when he should be serving the king of kings. Young man, this young man was more concerned about serving the British government than his lord, the king of kings. What is more important than knowing, serving, loving the crucified, resurrection king of kings? What is more important than beholding the king? When anyone claims to be a believer... And they are not beholding Christ, the King. It's because their minds are set on earthly things, as Philippians, the third chapter, tells us. So here's my challenge to you tonight. And I want you to think about this, not only as I'm preaching, but even when you leave here. Think about this, please. Is anything more important in your life than Christ? For Pilate... Christ was not the most important one in his life. For the Jewish leaders, Christ was not only the most, not only the most important one in his life, but it was an irritant to them. You know, sometimes Christ is an irritant to people. You talk about Jesus and it just irritates them. For the Jewish leaders, that's what it was all about. It wasn't that they just rejected Christ, but he was a bother because he was infiltrating their little religious system. Four points I'm going to bring to you tonight. I usually bring three. This is four points. You are to behold Christ. First point. Second point, you are to fear Christ. The third point, you have no authority but Christ. And the fourth point, you have no king but Christ. Let's look at point one. You are to behold Christ. If you look in any Broadway play, there are always main characters, and then you have the supporting role characters. In our text today, there are three main characters in this historic unfolding drama. First one is the religious leaders. We know from all of biblical history that the nation of Israel rejects God and his Messiah, which culminates at the crucifixion. We know that. Blinded by hatred, blinded by envy, they did all they could to put Jesus to death, even violating their own law. They were what you would call the epitome of hypocrisy. But we will see that they were just pawns in the hand of a sovereign God, which God used for his own eternal purposes. Second, there was Pontius Pilate. He was a Roman procurator, a very powerful man in government. The Roman government, very powerful. He was concerned more about his power and position than his eternal soul. Another pawn who was a spineless coward, as we will see. And the third character was Jesus, the perfect God-man, the second Adam. He was fulfilling the perfect plan of God the Father. He was the victor, not the victim. Sometimes we see, we watch these movies and Christ is the victim. No, he was never the victim. He was always the victor, even through his passion and his crucifixion. He was fulfilling the perfect plan of God the Father. In our previous chapter, we learned that Jesus was betrayed. He was tried by Annas, the high priest, and then Caiaphas, the Jewish council, the religious 
This was a religious trial and they found Jesus what? Guilty. Guilty of blasphemy. It was a religious trial. Then the Jews sent Jesus to Pilate, which which began a civil trial. All of a sudden it became political. And Pilate, knowing Jesus was innocent, tried to freedom, but to no avail. The crowd was foaming at the mouth. Crucify him, crucify him. They wanted to see Jesus dead. So in our text, Pilate tries to appease the crowd and has Jesus flogged, as we see in the first verse. Now let's talk about flogging. And the the reason why I want you to really get this, because we often think about Christ being crucified to the cross, and rightfully so, but we forget about the events that led up to his crucifixion. Let's talk about flogging. Many of you may not understand what flogging is or scourging some versions have. Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Manners and Customs says this, after they condemned an individual to crucifixion, they customarily tortured them. Among the Romans, this normally took place in the form of flogging. Jesus was flogged or scourged. And because he was accused of sedition, it would, it would have been especially severe. The Greek of Matthew 27:26 indicates that Jesus was scourged with a flagellum. It's a whip of leather straps, often weighed with pieces of metal or bone at the end, which tore the flesh as it struck. So the accused would have been beaten to a bloody pulp. Just one little description of what Jesus went for you, through for you and me. And listen to what Dr. Kent Hughes says. Scourging was terrible. Many died from it, and others were mad, went mad. They actually went mad, insane from the pain and the, and the scourging. Ancient authorities as diverse as Eusebius, Josephus, and Cicero relate that scourging normally meant a flaying to the bone. You know what that means? His skin was ripped off that you could actually see his ribs. Eusebius tells of martyrs who were torn by scourges down to the deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, the entrails and organs were exposed to sight. Now, I can't even imagine what that's like. That your Savior and my Savior was scourged to the, to the point where you could see his insides. Was it just the cross? What about the events that led up to the cross? What about the mental torment in the garden that causes sweat to be drops of blood from broken capillaries? Do we ever think about that? And now his flesh is torn and his ribs and organs are now exposed. No wonder Isaiah said, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And the one that David said, I can count all my bones. There is no movie, old or new, that depicts Christ's torment accurately. The latest one was Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Does not do justice to what happened to Jesus Christ. I saw the movie. First of all, I don't really like movies like that. Because they never depict it accurately, biblically. I saw a movie. The movie, it doesn't do justice to this text. That wasn't enough. The soldiers mocked Jesus and dressed him like a king. Do you understand what they did to your Savior? They began to mock him. Do you understand that your Savior was God in human flesh? That they mocked him? That they were mocking God Almighty in human flesh? Verse 2 and 3 tells us, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. The crown of thorns were not your normal rosebush thorn which is only about a quarter of an inch long. No. Listen to Dr. Sproul's description. Depictions of this event have been rendered by the greatest artist of the ages in an effort to capture something of the physical agony caused by the crown of thorns. Few, if any, of them are accurate. 
The thorns that were woven, woven together to make this crown were spikes that reached a length of 12 inches. Then the whole mass of thorns was shook down in Jesus' head so that the thorns were driven into his temples, all for the sport of the soldiers. All right, here's, what I, here's what I want you to get tonight. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I hope you come to faith in Jesus Christ tonight. If, if you are a Christian, I hope you realize what Christ did for your sins. The torment he went, went through. Sometimes we're very nonchalant about what he went through. We can all take it for granted. But this is something we should think about on a daily, place, a daily basis. How do we benefit from Christ's crown? Christ, the sinless one, became sin for us. He laid aside his crown of honor and put on the crown of thorns. And one day, believers will be crowned with five heavenly crowns mentioned in the New Testament. Did you know that? There is the imperishable crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and the crown of life. You're going to have that if you're a believer. Christ bore your crown of judgment, my crown of judgment, and gave you his crown of honor. But the crown of thorns wasn't enough. Then the soldiers proceeded with their mockery and arrayed him with a purple robe. Now Matthew says it was a scarlet robe, which is red, but whatever it was, it could have been a mix between purple and red which indicates royalty the purple dye in biblical times was expensive uh, and because it was expensive robes that were purple were only worn by the high officials Jesus was clothed in a purple robe by the soldiers not because they viewed him as king but because they were mocking him Luke's account tells us that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod he wanted to get Jesus off his hands. He wanted to get rid of the responsibility of Jesus. So he sent him to Herod. And Herod also put royal, a royal robe on him. It was mockery. It was all mockery. The Savior was getting mocked. This was all part of the suffering of Christ. So he could atone for our sins. Matthew tells us they put a reed in his right hand. Which was to symbolize a scepter carried by sovereignty. Listen what Sproul says again. He says, the whole idea was to make Jesus look not like a king, but a court jester. He was like a joke to the Jewish people and to Pilate. So, when we think of Christ suffering physically, we should. But he also suffered in humiliation. He, he suffered mentally. Once again, we must not just focus on the cross concerning Jesus' suffering, but we must not forget the events that led up to the cross. The humiliation Jesus had to suffer is beyond my understanding, and I hope it's beyond yours, because we can't. You can't understand the humiliation of the, the eternal person of the, sec, of the second person of the eternal trinity. The flogging Dressing Jesus up and mocking him still wasn't enough. They came up to him, saluted him, kneeled down before him, and mockingly said, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Matthew, Mark, said the soldiers were hitting Jesus on the head with a staff that was in Jesus' hand. This was done repeatedly. This wasn't just one little hit on the head. Why did Pilate allow this if he thought Jesus was innocent? Why would anyone allow a man to suffer like that if he thought Jesus was innocent? Well, first of all, he wanted to show the Jews the ridiculousness of their accusations against Jesus. So what does Pilate do? He brings out to the crowd Jesus, full of blood, swollen in his face, Bones and artery and veins exposed and says to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. That's a sad way to show somebody that there's no guilt in a man. 
by having him flogged and ridiculed. The crowd is looking at Jesus all disfigured. And Pilate says, Behold the man. In Latin, in the Latin phrase, it's echo homi, which conveys the idea of, look at this poor fellow. Now I asked Aunt Diana yesterday, my Aunt Diana knows a lot of Arabic, I said, and I always hear my wife say, haram. Haram. What does haram mean? It means poor thing. So what Pilate was saying was, look at that, this poor thing. Look at him. Does he really look like a king? What kind of threat is he? He's a haram. Dr. Donald Carson said, Pilate is speaking with dripping irony. Here is the man you find so dangerous and threatening. Can you not see he's harmless and somewhat ridiculous? That's the way Pilate viewed him. Pilate may have thought that when the Jews saw Jesus like this, this would have been enough. But it wasn't. It wasn't enough. They continued to cry out, crucify him. But Pilate maintained his innocence and told him, you crucify him. Something we should notice as we get familiar with the Gospel of John is throughout his Gospel, John presents Jesus as the perfect God-man. John is probably using irony here. What kind of man were they beholding? Well, Pilate at best presented a man that was maybe misguided, but innocent. The Jews beheld this man to be a blasphemer. But they all should have seen the perfect man, the second Adam, the God-man, the Savior, the Messiah. They didn't see that. Instead, you know what they did? They mocked him. You know, the world still mocks Christ today. Make no mistake about it. The world still mocks Christ today. But Christ is still saving men's souls to this day. Any of you ever hear of Polycarp? Bishop Polycarp was a bishop of the early church. He was one of the first, he was one of the early uh, church fathers. He was, this, he was actually a disciple of John the Apostle, history tells us. A contemporary of Ignatius and a teacher of Irenaeus. According to Irenaeus, Polycarp was instructed by the apostles and was brought into contact with many who had seen Christ. He lived from the later half of the first century to the mid-century, mid-second century. Polycarp was martyred by the Romans and his death was influential even among the pagans. Polycarp was arrested as an old man, he was 86 years old, and he was sentenced to be burned at the stake for his devotion to Christ. The Roman proconsul took pity on Polycarp and urged him to recant. After all, he had to do, all he had to do was say, Caesar is Lord. And that's what they did back then. They wanted you to say, Caesar is Lord. If it was Nero, Nero is Lord. So all he, all he had to do was say, Caesar is Lord, and offer a little bit of incense to Caesar's statue. And he would live. Polycarp's response was, 86 years, and I love this, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this man's heart. 86 years, I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And Polycarp was executed. You see, for Polycarp, he behold the true king and didn't cave in like Pilate and the Jews. When Christ was revealed to Polycarp, and he beheld him as the God-man, the king of kings and lord of lords, Polycarp would eventually die for him. If I asked you, there's a few questions I'm going to ask you tonight. Challenging. That's what preaching does. It challenges the hearer. That's what the Gospels do. They challenge the hearer. That's what all Scripture does. It challenges us. It's like a mirror. We look into it. And if I asked you, do you behold the man, the king? Probably all of you would say, well, yeah, we're Christians. We do. But when you're before the Jews... And the pilots of this world, and they present Jesus to you as a moral teacher or a false prophet, or anything less than God, and they say, behold the man, do you cave in like Pilate? Do you say nothing? Or do you say no? He is the king of kings. He is the God man. 
He is God in human flesh that suffered and died for my sins. Who do you say like Joel Osteen who said, The Mormons have the same Jesus we have and we are Christian brothers. I've heard him say it many times. That said, Or do you behold Christ the Savior? You either behold Christ, God the Son, the Savior, or you behold Jesus, a man, a good teacher, or maybe as some view him as a false prophet. Point one, you ought to behold Christ. Point two, you ought to fear Christ. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid, which tells us he was afraid, now he's even more afraid. Pilate was deeply, deeply affected by this. He was afraid. What his fear stemmed from, we don't know. Perhaps he was superstitious, which was common amongst the Romans. If Jesus is some kind of God... He just had this God punished and tormented. And now maybe this God will take revenge on him. Maybe that was part of his fears. So Pilate was afraid. Whatever it was, he was afraid. And to compound his fears, Matthew tells us in the 27th chapter, the 19th verse, that Pilate's wife during the trial sent word to him and said, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. We don't know where the dream came from. We don't know if God gave her the dream or whatever, wherever it came from. But Pilate should have listened to his wife. But all... Actually, Pilate couldn't listen to his wife. Because all these events happen according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Amen. Acts 22, Acts 2, 23 tells us. God is using the sinful acts of man... To fulfill his purpose of redemption. Even the fears of Pilate. Fears. The Bible tells us to fear God. But Pilate's fears were not enough. Because some fear Christ without reverence. Pilate's fears did not drive him to bend his knees to worship and seek forgiveness from Christ. Pilate's fears were not God-fearing in the sense of reverence and awe, a reverence for Jesus' power and glory. It's the kind of fear we're supposed to have. That's a godly fear. It's a healthy fear. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us to have a healthy fear. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then Proverbs 19.23 The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Numerous times Jesus encouraged his disciples, fear not. So we're going to go back and forth to godly fear and ungodly fear. Actually, throughout the scriptures, the people of God were encouraged not to fear. Is there a contradiction? No. Believers ought to have a godly fear, not a dreadful fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 Paul told Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. But unbelieving fears, you know, what, you, know what, you know what unbelieving fear is? It's torment. It's torment. Whenever you have torment because of fear, it's not godly fear. And God doesn't want you to have that if you're a Christian. God does not want you to have tormenting fear. 1 John 4 eight says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the Christian who fears is not yet perfected in love. And at times, at times if we admit we all have fears. And God is perfecting us in his love. He's perfecting us. So we don't have that fear of the future and torment and judgment. Pilate did not have the love of God in his heart. So he feared and he was tormented. He also feared men. He didn't fear God. He feared men. Caesar. He feared Caesar. He feared the Jews losing his position. Rather than fearing God. Jesus said in Matthew 10.28. And do not fear those who kill the body. But cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body. Or both soul and body in hell. 
He should have feared God. An unknown source writes this. I, 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 I couldn't get the source. But during World War II, a military governor met with General George Patton in Sicily. When he praised Patton highly for his courage and bravery, the general, re- the general replied, Sir, I am not a brave man. The truth is I am a coward. I have never been with the sound of gunshots or in the sight of battle in my whole life that I wasn't so scared that I had sweat in the palms of my hands. Years later, when Patton's autobiography was published, it contained this significant statement by the general. I learned, every, I learned very early in my life never to let my fears take control of me. You see, for Pilate, he let his fears take control of him. And we will see the outcome later as he caves in and gives in to the demands of the Jews to crucify the Son. If you're a believer, the only fear that controls you is the godly fear, the, rever- the reverential fear, a fear of awe. It will lead you to worship, it will lead you to honor God, it will lead you to obey God. It will lead you when Pilate's enemies, or when Pilate and the enemies of Christ in the world try to sway you from faith in Christ to not give in, but to be a witness for him. That's what godly fear will do. As Peter said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. They feared God rather than man, Peter and the apostles. Don't let ungodly fear control you. Fear God. Fear Christ. Point three, you have no authority but Christ. Verses 9 through 11. He entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. You see, Pilate at this point was beside himself, thinking Jesus may be more than a man and wants to know where Jesus is from. He is going crazy. The Jews knew exactly what they wanted to do, but he didn't know what he wanted to do. So Jesus is silent. Isaiah said this would happen. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shear is a silence, so he opened not his mouth. Not that Pilate was going to really accept anything that Jesus said if Jesus gave him an answer. Dr. Carson said Jesus gave Pilate no answer. He and Pilate occupy entirely different worlds and no answer short or long would have been sufficient to adequately address Pilate's question. How could Pilate possibly understand who Jesus is if God's people who own the scriptures fail to understand. If we have the scriptures and we still don't understand, that's a sad case. But we're learning, right? We're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Unless the Father draws a person to his son, no one will understand. Really, that's the bottom line. I remember when Paul was preaching and Lydia was listening and says God opened her heart and she understood what Paul said. Pilate seems irritated at this point because Jesus is silent so he lashes out at him and parades his authority before him. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Maybe he's hoping Jesus will be intimidated and cave in. I don't know. But Jesus breaks his silence and says, listen Pilate, The only authority you have over me is the authority from above. And that is it. Jesus was basically telling him, my father gave you this authority over me, which I fully and voluntarily submit to. Jesus could have stopped it at any time. You know that, right? Twelve legions of angels could have came at his his side and freed him. You know that, right? That's right. Jesus was in full control. Don't ever think, once again, Jesus was never the victim. Never the victim. He was always the victor. 
He was just following his father's plan. Why was he father following his father's plan? For you and me. Christ has authority. But he loved the father. Is one with the father. Always does the will of the father. And therefore submits to the father. Which includes Pilate's temporary authority. And I say temporary. Pilate was clay in the father's hands. Pilate was doing what God ordained him to do. And yet. This is where the sovereignty of God. And man's responsibility both in the Bible, Pilate was responsible for his actions. He's not going to get away. Even though God's sovereign, he's still responsible. Pilate's going to forcibly say one day, Jesus is Lord. Did you know that? Not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. Believers in this world have no authority but Christ's. Way too many times, I hear people bashing political leaders and other forms of authority. There's like an arrogance where someone will say, I'm not going to listen to the president. I'm not going to listen to the mayor. Or I'm not going to listen to my parents. I'm not going to listen to the cops. I'm not going to listen to the firemen or the church leader or whatever. As Christians, God gives us specific commands concerning the authorities over us. This by no means is limited, limited to the government. Of course not. There's also authority in marriage, the family, the church, and others, every one of us are under authority, every single one of us. But our ultimate authority is Christ. But if we do not submit to the authorities that God ordained, we are not submitting to Christ's authority. And why do I say that? Because Jesus, God in human flesh, submitted to Pilate. Yes. Are you above Christ? That you refuse to submit what God says to submit to? Are we better than Jesus? Who as in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8 says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Are any of us better than that? No. Now there is a time... When we don't submit to the earthly authorities, when they try to make us sin and violate our conscience against God. I don't have time to go over the exceptions, nor is that the point. So please don't anybody come up to me after and say, well, what? It's not the point. The point is, we have to follow Christ's example. God is pleased with that. Pilate was given authority over Jesus by the Father for his own purpose. God sovereignly used Pilate. And the Jews to crush his son for the redemption of lost souls. See, Jesus didn't fight against Pilate's authority, did he? No, neither should we. Listen, our earthly authorities are, if our earthly authorities are abusing their power, like the Jewish and Roman authorities, God will use it for his purposes. Romans 8.28, a very familiar passage of scripture. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things. Can God actually work all things? Sin, weakness, authoritative abuse, evil, wickedness, and so on. God the Father used the Jews and the Romans and the evils to fulfill his plan of redemption. Hallelujah. God will even use abusive powers in your life for your good and His glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. So don't worry when the authorities are crooked, your boss is lying about you, etc. Submit to them, and then you're really submitting to Christ. That's the bottom line. You submit to Christ and His authority, and He promises you freedom. And listen to this, exaltation. After Jesus humbled Himself, right? And in this context, it was allowing the pilot to have authority over him. This is what happened. Let's continue in, in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, after he humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, if we humble ourselves as Christ did, He will exalt us. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and guess what? He exalts you. But guess what? If you exalt yourself, guess what? He'll humble you. Have you, any of you besides me ever been there? I, I, I'd rather humble myself than letting God humble me. I'd rather humble myself and let God exalt me than me exalting myself and God has to humble me. It's very, it's very, very humiliating. I remember when I was up. I won't tell you that story. It'll take too long. One thing I'd like to bring to your attention before we go to the last point is Jesus said in verse 11, the second half of verse 11, he says, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. What was Jesus talking about there? Was it Judas? Was it Annas, the high priest? Was it the Jews? Probably not, though they all had upon Jesus' capture and trial. Jesus may have been, and I think probably, speaking of Caiaphas, he was the presiding high priest at that time. He's the one Jesus went through. He's the one that ripped his clothes and said he's committing blasphemy. He's the one who actually handed Jesus over to Pilate. So I think, in that sense, he had the greatest sin. By the way, the greatest sin tells me that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Last point. Four. Point four. You have no king but Christ. Verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate sought to, sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Manipulation, by the way. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Manipulation. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat, a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. That's probably the saddest thing that Pilate ever did. The best way I could describe the Jews who were crying out for Jesus' death is hypocritical and manipulative. They knew exactly, exactly how to get to Pilate. You know how manipulation works? You know how it works? You do things, you say things to get the person to do what you want them to do. Well, that's what the Jews did to Pilate. Manipulation. Their accusations to Pilate had nothing to do with religion or their law. It did, if you look in the early part of the uh, last chapter, it did, right? It was a religious trial. Now it's purely political. They're manipulating him. This scared Pilate because to be a friend of Caesar was important in Pilate's position. It meant that you were a supporter or associate of the emperor. You were part of the inner circle. And at that time, Caesar was Tiberius, as I said before, who was known to be ruthless and suspicious of rivals. If he thought Pilate was a rival, Pilate could lose his status, or maybe even his life. And the Jews knew this, and they hung it over Pilate's head. Did you ever see, remember the little rascals when they were hanging the carrot over the horse? That's what they were doing with Pilate. You see, Pilate had already had a shaky political standing and if the Jews went to Tiberius and accused him of public disorder guess what bye bye Pilate not only his position but possibly his life so Pilate frustrated by the turn of events sits on his judgment seat to pass sentencing and says behold your king imagine imagine this think about this Pilate is pronouncing judgment on Jesus, who was the eternal judge. One day, Pilate will face Jesus, who will pronounce eternal judgment on him. He is the eternal judge. 
He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Didn't scare the Jews. And now their hypocrisy is really going to show. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Really? Really? You have no king but Caesar? Wasn't Israel a theocratic nation? Whose king and ruler was who? God. And now to get what they want, they shift their plan and pretend that Caesar, Caesar is their king. But here's the irony. Irony. Listen what Dr. John MacArthur says. He says, That there was truth in their statement. Having rejected their messianic king, they were left with Caesar as their king. They rejected their king. Actually, if you read 1 Samuel, what happened in 1 Samuel? Give us a king. We want to be like the other nations. And God says, really? Really, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And they gave him who? Saul. Saul, remember the first king of Israel? What a disaster. What a disaster. Then came Solomon. And then King David. And then after that, all the kings, when the kingdom divided, you had the northern kingdom, Israel, and then you had the southern kingdom, Judah. All the kings of Israel, every single one of them, were wicked. But there was about nine kings in Judah that were supposedly good kings, although they had their faults too. And God was just doing it to preserve the royal line up until Christ came. David's royal line, praise God. God is so amazing. I always say this and I'll say it every time I preach. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. They were manipulating Pilate. And guess what? They succeeded. Devil had his way. Not really. Not really. God used. God let the devil have his way in this. Right? Let him. And Pilate, who I'm sure is feeling trapped, gives in and hands Jesus over to their will to be crucified. The king. Jesus preached. As you read through the gospel, you see Jesus preaching over and over again the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, the kingdom of God is in the believer's heart where the king lives. If you have the king in your heart, guess what? The kingdom of God is in your heart. Does the king, Jesus, reside in your heart? Or is there another kingdom there? A kingdom where Christ does not rule. Maybe a kingdom of self. Maybe a kingdom of food. Maybe a kingdom of looks. Maybe a kingdom of sports. You fill in the blank. What kingdom is residing in your heart? Is it King Jesus? Listen, I have to ask myself that question every day. Who's residing in my heart today? There is no salvation where Jesus is not King of kings and Lord of lords in your heart. When he returns, he's not coming back as this meek, humble servant, but the sovereign king. We see Jesus. We read the account of Jesus. We read the birth of Jesus. We read his whole life. He was a humble servant. But not when he comes back, folks. And I tell this to people all the time. When he comes back, he's not your savior. You, there's only one thing he can be. He's your judge. He's coming back as the king of kings and the lord of lords. He already, you see, this is where the Jews miss it in the Old Testament. They see, they see the exalted Christ. They don't see the humble servant, the one who had to suffer and die for their sins. But when he returns, his enemies will face him. Revelation 17, 4, 14. <laughs> These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with them are the called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 19.16 And on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I love that title. King of kings and Lord of lords. We sing that song, King of kings and Lord of lords, glory. King of kings and Lord of lords, glory. Hallelujah. Jesus. <laughs> Prince of peace, glory. Hallelujah. Okay. Can I join the worship team? <laughs> I'll have to audition you. 
Is Christ your king or is there another? Ask yourself that question, please. You don't have to fear this king. He's filled with grace for you. He's grace. It's grace. That's why the Father sent him to suffer and die for you. That's the good news of the kingdom. So let me ask you in conclusion what I asked you in the beginning. Is there anything more important than life in your Christ? Are you beholding Christ when the world mocks him? Are you beholding the God-man, the perfect one, even though the world depicts him as imperfect? Do you fear Christ? Not terror in your heart for fear of punishment because of sin. You know, First John tells us, if we say we have not sinned, we lie and we deceive ourselves. God forgives us when we sin. doesn't mean to continue willfully sinning. Just means that when we sin, we confess it, and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the kind of king you have. So He doesn't want you to have terror in your heart for fear of punishment because of sin, but He wants you to have loving, reverential fear, a deep respect. You're awestruck by Him. Are you awestruck by God? That's the kind of fear He wants. Is Christ your authority? Is He the one you submit to and obey? And finally, is Christ your King? Is Christ, as as, as 1 Peter tells us, revered in your heart as Lord? (coughs) If you answer yes to all these questions, then Christ is the most important one in your life. He is. If you answer no, then I urge you to call upon Him and believe in Him. Confess Him as Lord and Savior. Believe that what He did for you, the betrayal, the trial, the flogging, the mocking, and the crucifixion, was for your sins to be forgiven. He's a gracious God. Go to Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You that we can behold Christ, that we can fear Christ, that we have no authority but Christ, and we have no king but Christ. We thank you that nothing should be more important to us than Christ in our lives. Help us, God, for those of us who struggle. And God, even Christians, as Christians, we struggle sometimes. Sometimes our priorities get backwards. Help us to always keep it front and center that Christ is the most important one in our lives. We behold Him. We fear Him. He's our authority. And he's our king. Father, make this truth a reality to each and every one of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.